Hey Logo Geeks, it's Ian Paget here and on this week's podcast I am joined by Michael Shoemate to discuss logo design theory. This is a real masterclass but before we get into that I want to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this podcast. When you work as a designer, you want to look professional and be organized. And and FreshBooks can help with this by allowing you to create branded professional invoices quickly, uh, keep track of your expenses, create tidy reports and more. I recommend that you go and try it out for yourself and you can do that with a free 30-day trial. And it's one of those where you don't need to enter any credit card details. So to sign up and claim that free trial, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek in the how did you hear about us section. So this week's episode has been in the works for quite a while. Uh, Way back in January, I received an email from this week's guest letting me know that he's releasing a second edition of his book, Logo Design Theory, and that he would like to send me a free advanced copy to write a review. Obviously, I responded accepting the offer, but I know I would need to wait a few weeks for that book to arrive as it was being sent from the US to the UK. So the time passed, the book arrived, and I added it to my ever-growing to-do pile. As you might be aware, back in March, I went full-time with Logo Geek, but I actually handed my notice in back in January, around the time when uh, Michael sent that email. So whilst working through my notice period, I worked every single waking hour preparing for uh, the moment I would go full time. So making sure I had plenty of work on, uh, I had as much booked in as as possible and made as much money as as I possibly uh, could because I I wanted to make sure I had a proper safety net. And I'm so glad I did that um, because of the whole COVID-19 situation. It made sure that I was uh, safe during that period. Uh, so that sadly meant that that book that Michael kindly sent was getting buried in my pile. So uh, Michael, I'm I'm so sorry about that. But anyway, fast forward four months, I finally had a moment to pick up the book. Michael sent it with a nice folder with information about him, about the book. Um, it was so organized. Uh, I flicked through the book, uh, which is full of golden nuggets. So I, I figured rather than write a, a review, let, let's instead get the author on and do a, a podcast about it instead. He kindly accepted and he was super organized again. He, he had questions prepared, notes and information which helped so much when it come around to uh, planning and preparing for the interview. Normally preparing for an interview can take, you know, several hours. You know, I, I tend to uh, read through as much as I can, listen to things that they've already done and plan questions around that. But uh, on, on this occasion, it, it didn't take long at all because Michael had pretty much done all of the work for me. It was amazing. Um, Michael Shoemate taught graphic design for 25 years. His courses included color theory, beginner, intermediate and advanced illustration, uh, web applications, art history and brand identity design. In addition to teaching for more than 45 years, Michael has been a graphic designer, commercial illustrator, and writer. In his second week of teaching uh, brand identity design, he, he told a student that the logo concept he was working on would not make a professional identity design. And that student asked, why and Michael couldn't provide an adequate answer so he set out on this quest to discover the underlying principles of logo design. It's been a 25-year quest that has led Michael to look deeply at logo design and to seek for those constant unchanging principles and he's turned that knowledge into a book and today he's going to share this with us too. Uh, This episode is truly a masterclass in logo design theory and the principles that we should all apply when working on a logo design. As Michael was so organized and prepared, we really crammed so much into this uh, hour-long episode. So I know that you'll all get a lot out of this no matter what experience 
uh, you have. So let's get into this. Here is the interview with Michael Shoemate. I can imagine that most of the audience will be aware of what this question is, but I, I think in terms of opening up the conversation, can you explain what is the purpose of corporate identity? The purpose of corporate identity is to clearly and quickly identify whose product, service, or or uh, whatever else you're talking about. It it is not to be cool. It is not to be uh, different. Uh, although novelty is great, uh, I, I'm not knocking novelty. But if you use that as your prime criteria and forget about the fact that you have to identify somebody's company clearly and people have to be able to recognize it and it has to be able to be reproduced equally well in a myriad of different media and and situations, then you've, you've missed the boat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's exactly the way that I see it because there's a lot of graphic designers out there that think that or not just logo designers, there's a lot of people out there that think that logo design is just a pretty picture, but there's a there's a whole functional side of it. And, um, you know, you want to make sure that you, you communicate all these different things. I'd love to go into that in more detail, but there was something in your book that I've not previously heard of, but you spoke about the principle of blowout. Mm-hmm. What What is that? Well, it's an acronym that I coined to help me remember what I consider to be the seven deadly sins of logo design. If you stop and think about a tire, uh, how many holes does it take in a tire before you're going to have a blowout? Just one. How many holes does it take in a balloon before the balloon is destroyed? Just one. It only takes one. And and these are things that I see over and over again, quite often in in what are supposed to be uh, design annuals promoting good design. And uh, yet because they are different, and somehow are, are breaking boundaries, people think that that somehow has, has made them good. And they're not because they don't work as corporate identities. They don't, won't work on signage or they won't work in printing without having to co- incur extra costs. Or they won't work when seen at a distance, which, of course, is always the case with signage. Um, they won't work when it's small. And you can't just militate and say, you can't use this logo any smaller than a, you know three quarters of an inch. And because that just doesn't work. There are too many places where it has to be smaller. And uh, from finance for just uh, if you're in a logo soup and and being sponsor or sponsoring an event, uh, you cannot demand that your logo is going to be a certain size. So there are just too many instances of that. Now, you can expect that a client wouldn't understand those things. But it's really shameful that a designer doesn't understand those things (laughs) because uh, Clients trust a designer, at least initially, and then they come to find out, you know what, our logo doesn't work in this situation, or it doesn't work in that situation, or why is it costing us so much more, or why do we have to always have printed vinyl on our vehicles and have to replace them every three years because printed vinyl doesn't last as long as as, uh, cut vinyl. All of those different kinds of things come into play. So what does blowout stand for? And can you expand on what these uh, seven deadly sins are? I certainly can. Uh, Like I said, I I use that to help me um, remember what they are. Um, The first one, B for blowout, B B and blowout is for, uh, has to be able to work in solid black. Uh, Too many identity designers think that's passe, think that it has no place in today's world of the, the web 2.0 look and all that stuff, but it absolutely does. Uh, what it really does is help you get a solid design before you go and add whistles and bells to it. You can always embellish a good design. And if you look at the company that, that first came into that, uh, first gave us that look and feel, it was Apple. And we've all seen the the transparent jelly apple and the transparent glass apple and the transparent plastic looking apple but you go to their website and what do you see the solid black apple and not only that it's only 19 pixels high <laughs> you try doing that with a with a design that's all whistles and bells and uh, you just have what i call pixel mush so that's b for for the blowout uh, the second letter l is for lack of mass so sometimes people think it's very elegant to have a very thinly sculpted 
logo, and, and it can look very elegant. And in other areas of graphic design, it can be very effective, but not for logo design, because without a certain amount of mass, you cannot see it at a distance. It does not reproduce when it's small. Even on the web, if it, it is very thin lines, you get the the situation where a single pixel is neither the logo color nor the background color. It's somewhere in between because of what we call anti-aliasing. And, and so again, you get pixel mush. So that's lack of mass. Number three is obscure contrast. We've got to have excellent contrast for legibility. And I, at the beginning of the book, I go over some of the basic principles that all designers should know. I expect some designers will want to skip that thinking. I already know the basic stuff. But they really need to review those things because contrast is, is the, I think, one of the most important principles of design. If you don't have contrast, you don't have legibility. If you don't have legibility, people cannot identify what you've designed. So what's the purpose? And legibility really comes down to value. How much value between light and dark difference there is between the element and its background. And so... Uh, bad contrast is is a really difficult thing, and it's a it's a deadly sin. Either there's two kinds of contrast. Can I just interrupt on that thing? Sorry. In the book, you've actually shown this amazingly well because you've put the colors all in black and white, and you can see um, instances where you've used certain colors on certain backgrounds. And I've been a graphic designer for I know like 15 years, and uh, I, I always base it on what I see in front of me, but actually seeing it the way that you've shown it with this uh, nice diagram, it's explained it so much better. So I can imagine that there's a lot of graphic designers out there that that don't know contrast to the degree that you've explained it in that book. I've not seen it anywhere else quite like that. So well, thank it's you. good. When I started in graphic design, there were no computers, right? You had You had manual skills and you had visual skills and now we we are teaching computers and i'm totally into computers i'm not not dissing computers one little bit i'm totally into computers but the the length of graphic design programs hasn't increased so if it was a three-year program before it's a three-year program now and they have to take time to teach photoshop and indesign and illustrator and and basic typography because now designers are the typesetters they don't send it out to typesetters like they did when I began in the industry. And so all of that time comes out of their design instruction. Unfortunately, a lot of these basic principles are what are what is missing in, in uh, modern Yeah, I agree. Education. I agree. And you've explained it really well in, in your book. Uh, so I'll let you carry on. Sorry for sure. interrupting. So you got so to see four, contrast. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, uh, well, it actually stands for O, for blowout. Uh, obscure contrast. And I had to kind of monkey with the words just to get the acronym to work. But <laughs> because acronyms are helpful, I, I wanted a good acronym. Uh, w stands for wayward parts or things that are out of harmony. That means either they don't fit with the kind of company that it is, you've got shapes that are not compatible, or you have shapes that don't agree with themselves. Uh, and, you know, all curves and then one straight line. If it's done deliberately, it can be a wonderful accent. But if it's done without recognizing that you have a wayward part, it's just clumsy design. So wayward parts is, is uh, number four. Number five is overlapping. Now, a <laughs> hundred years ago, uh, you had these uh, engraved logos that people had on their stationery, and, and they'd have a lot of overlap type and so on. And yet, over that last hundred years, people have learned that overlapping does not help any design. It makes it dif more difficult for the eye to parse, to, to, to decipher, it makes it uh, just harder to read. And of course, that's going against the very bedrock principle of what, a, what an identity is supposed to do is provide instant recognition. So overlapping, it may not kill an identity, but it never helps one. So overlapping of elements usually is an, an, an attempt on the designer to, to overcome a really lackluster design and try to figure out how something can work. So overlapping is, is number five. Number six is unrefined shapes. So we have, uh, best example I can think of is the former uh, Intel logo, where it had the I-N-T and then the E was dropped down, and then it joined up with the L at normal level. 
and uh, it just didn't work. It was kind of a clumsy design. They have since gone gone away from that and and gotten a new logo. Um, all sorts of unrefined shapes um, are, are coming along. And again, this this can happen more often if you're concerned more with color and and um, gradients and and all sorts of whistles and bells in your design before you come up with a solid design. You can, like I said, you can always embellish a flat design, but taking this thing that's all whistles and bells, you may find there's no substance to it. And then the last of the seven deadly sins is tiny elements and thin lines. And this is, is again, for reasons I already mentioned, where you have, uh, you don't, you don't have enough pixels for the the line to be a solid of what it's supposed to be, whatever color it's supposed to be, or the black the background. Another thing that happens is in printing, uh, thin lines will either drop off, or more commonly they will fill in when reversed. And to say you can never reverse a logo is is pretty limiting. It's like telling a person uh, you can't drive this car on weekdays; you can only drive it on the weekends. But it's a great car otherwise, you know, and. Uh, so that's the that's the seven things. Uh, it has to work in solid black, lack of mass, obscure contrast, wayward parts, overlapping elements, unrefined shapes, uh, thin tiny elements, and thin lines. So those are the seven deadly sins, and that altogether is what blowout stands for. I love that. I, th I think that's amazing because uh, there's there's a lot of uh, principles, a good design that's been spoke about. I've I've done episodes on it uh, previously, but. I think what you've been able to identify is uh, a system that can be used to effectively evaluate logo designs because you can be very specific. Like you, you can ask uh, those seven questions, does this work? And and if any of them fail, it pops. You know, I, I love that blowout that it's, it's, it's not going to work effectively if one of these pieces doesn't work. So amazing. <laughs> um, I'm going to be referencing that myself. I love the, the, the word blowout so that you can uh, bring them back to your mind. Brilliant. Really good. Thank you. You're welcome. So we got these seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. what, what's left to work with? <laughs> well, and that's the natural thing. You, you, especially as I, as I, I taught graphic design for 25 years, and my students, after I'd explained the seven daily sins, they'd all get terribly dejected. Well, what's left? You know, there's nothing left we can do. Oh, that's that's <laughs> just so far from the truth. That's like saying, here are the 12 notes of the octave. This is where you will write your music. And the only 12 notes. How can I possibly write the music I want with only 12 notes? <laughs> well, all of the music of the Western world has been written with those 12 notes. We have not had to invent new notes. Now, you go to Eastern Eastern cultures, and they do have other notes in between. But, uh, you know, for in the Western world of music, we have not run out of music with those 12 notes. And so just saying that there are rules and, and there's this, this terribly juvenile desire to break all the rules. I don't even want to learn them. I just want to break them. Well, that's 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 just uh, unfortunately very adolescent. And and there are rules. And and there, I actually don't like to use the term rule. I like to use the rule the, the term principles. There are principles that you cannot violate without incurring a tremendous um, negative negative um, reward. And the negative reward in the case of identity design is that it doesn't work, and it's going to be replaced. And the clients who got the logo from you in the first place are most likely not going to come back to you to get a new logo if you gave them a logo that didn't work in the first place. So, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. But there are so many other things that we can do. And um, for that purpose, I, I explained, um, I don't know if you wanted to get into this, but how you can brainstorm and actually come up with more and better concepts with yourself by understanding how many different components there are in identity design, and then understanding how many different concepts there are of all the different logos you've ever seen. And some of us have seen millions of logos, no doubt. There are only four different concepts. And you understand that. It is a, a wonderfully liberating thing. It lets you see, oh, yeah, that's one of this kind of logos, and that's one of those kind of logos. 
and uh, and and it it's just really liberating. Did you want to talk about that now? Oh yeah, I'd love to. I think that would be really good to go into. So but there, there's been a number of things that you brought up that I do want to ask about. But I think sure. since you brought up that topic, brainstorming. Let, let's go through that. How how would you go about brainstorming ideas for for logo design? Well, first thing is to recognize that there are four different components possible in identity design, three of which are actually useful. The, the fourth one is only really good for um, consumer products like Gillette and, and Armstrong and some of those other kind of uh, companies like that, that basically it's just picking a font and writing the company name in it. That is the lowest form of design value added. And it doesn't work for all companies. In fact, it doesn't work for most companies, which is why we have logos in, that have been yeah. designed. But the, the next step up is to take a, the word or the signature and add some unique design element to it. So uh, famous examples would be uh, Microsoft. Um, there are all sorts of, uh, of, of great logos that are identities that are word marks, what I call word marks. Now, some people use the term logotype. I think that's a very confusing term. I don't use it because it, it confuses people. Is it a logo or is it type? And so I use the term word mark to mean it's just typographic, but it has some unique design element. Uh, the Dell logo with the, the, the E that has been turned to an isometric uh, angle. Um, you have uh, Sanyo where the the N has the, the um, tapering slashes in it, uh, all sorts of things like that, where, those, where it has a unique design element to it. That becomes a word mark, not just a signature, because it's not just type. It's type and something else that has been added to it. And then you have monograms, which usually are taking the first letter or letters of the company name, and you do something with that. And so that becomes uh, a very powerful approach. WordPress uh, uses a monogram. Um, IBM uses a monogram. Kawasaki uses a monogram. General Electric uses a monogram. So those are very uh, useful kinds kinds of logos. So they're a subset of logos. And then the last one is logos, which we just we just have a design there, and uh, and that. So we have the, the three possible components for really good identity design: word marks, monograms, and logos. And then you look at the concept side of it. There are only the four different kinds of concepts, as I mentioned. The first and one that most designers will gravitate to in the beginning is corporate activity. What do these people do? And so the corporate activity for Uniroyal shows attire stylized straight on. Um, the corporate activity for Animal Planet, has, which was just done by uh, Chermayef, Geismer, and Haviv, um, shows an elephant, a stylized elephant. Uh, so these show what the company does. But that's not the only concept. It's, it's a good one, but it's not the only one. The next one is to show the corporate ideals. What would this company like you to associate with them? So um, the, the identity for uh, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, or just called Merrill Lynch now, which is pro probably the largest um, stock brokerage company in the world, is a stylized bull. Because bull market is one where everybody makes money. So that's something they'd like to, to, to associate with themselves. Prudential Life Insurance has a stylized rock of Gibraltar. And they're, they, used, they used to include it, but they don't anymore. They used to include it as their tagline, as solid as the rock of Gibraltar. Because insurance companies were, at one point, uh, many, many decades ago, were very, uh, very they, could, they could disappear. And then all your money in the, in the insurance was wasted. So, um, but ideals can be things like lions showing strength or superiority or leadership. It can be like the Playboy Bunny showing fertility and, uh, you know, and sexual activity. Even on the negative side, you have the, the swastika, which was uh, the reverse of the peace symbol, the Hindu peace symbol, that was the war symbol. And they wanted to, to strike fear in everybody's minds. And they did with their very effective graphic design. So, Graphic design is a power. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But let's always assume we're going to use it for good. Um, the NBC logo with the, the stylized peacock, when they were one of the first networks to come out with the living color. I remember that. I'm old enough to remember that. Most of your listeners probably won't be. So that's corporate ideals. So you want to have some ideal that you want to associate. Not what they do, but just an ideal that you want to associate with the company. 
And then the third kind is corporate name, where you just talk about the name of the company. It doesn't tell them what they do. So the Whirlpool, um, Whirlpool is a big brand of, of appliances over here. I don't know if you have them in Britain. But um, the, the logo for that is literally uh, spiraled lines that look like a Whirlpool. And that's the name of the company. Um, delta Airlines. Uh, and it shows a, a triangle shape in the shape of a Delta, which was um, just the name of the, the airline. It doesn't really talk about, doesn't look like an airplane, doesn't really look like anything else. John Deere Farm Equipment. I don't, again, don't know if you have that over in Britain. But, yeah, we do. Uh, John Deere Farm Equipment is, is just a deer. Well, it's, you know, you don't, you can't hook up a plow to a deer. So it's not really letting anybody know what they do. It's just talking about the name. That's how you pronounce it. Since it is spelled a little bit different with an E on the end, uh, it just lets people know how, how you pronounce it. Uh, Apple computer. Apples are not, you know, very effective things and they're not techie. Uh, it's just an apple with a little bite out of it. And um, that's the name of their company. And it's such an effective logo that they don't even bother putting their name with it because, well, it's an apple right there. They don't need to say apple again if you can't tell what the, what the picture is. Um, it's, it's very, very um, evident. Shell gas. I mean, we do not get petroleum from, from uh, prehistoric crustaceans. You know, <laughs> that's not where it comes from. It's just the name of the company. And so it's a stylized scallop shell. And uh, and again, it's so effective that they have discontinued uh, putting the name Shell uh, with with the with the sign. It's it's uh, that effective. So there's the third one, and then the fourth one is just an abstract approach. And this is it might sound like a cop out, but it actually can be very very effective. Uh, one of the big brands of car manufacturers over here is Chevrolet, and Chevrolet has this very interesting parallelogram uh, design, Mitsubishi. Is another very simple one with uh, three diamonds all all connected together to make a triangle. Uh, Citroen, um, the car company, is just two two um, chevrons, uh, one on top of the other. Uh, so these are these are very common kind of things, and they can be very effective. Um, the the Chrysler Corporation, uh, which is big again, U.S. manufacturer. Uh, had a, a pentagram with a five-pointed star inside of it. Um, these have nothing to do with cars. It doesn't say anything about their ideals particularly. It doesn't say anything about their name. It's just an abstract approach, but it can be very effective. So you have your four, um, your four concepts, corporate activity, corporate ideals, corporate name, and abstract. And then you have three possible components, word marks, monograms, and logos. So what you do is you sit down with yourself and you require yourself to come up with at least two concepts that show word marks with corporate activity, that show word marks with corporate ideals, that show word marks with corporate name, and that are abstract. And then you sit down and you say, I'm going to do at least two monograms for uh, monograms with corporate activity and monograms with corporate ideals and monograms with corporate name and monograms with abstract. And then you do the same thing with logos. And you... And then at the, the end of that, you'll have a minimum of 24 concepts. And what you can then do is not editorialize and say, well, this one's junk and I don't want that one and that's too simple and this is very trite. Don't do that at this stage. Just look at them and see if there is a shape there that uh, in one that might you might consider very trite and, oh, that would never work. Um, and, and see if it could use, may be used with, with uh, say, a negative shape in a letter. Or, or see if it could be a planar or a silhouette uh, ideal. And that brings us to the then, after you've done the conceptualizing, then you, d you kind of try to decide where, which ones you want to invest in. Which ones do you want to take a step further and see if they're going to work? Because most clients will appreciate more than one design. I know some designers, they do one design, that's it, take it or leave it. And, uh, and I've done that in the past too. But because when I'm when I'm sure I've got the best design, that's what I want to show a client. Because they'll invariably choose the worst design <laughs> if you <Yeah>. let them. <laughs> so so sometimes I do that. But but that's that. Can you not even? How could you not suppose that that system would not give you more and better uh, identity concepts to start with? Because you'll come up with things that you would never have thought of doing because you're forcing yourself. How can I show this corporate's activity, this corporation's activity, in a word mark? How can I incorporate that into the name? 
And how can I do that as a monogram? How can I do that as a logo? And you're kind of using what traditionally has been spoken of as the left side of your brain to kickstart the right side of your brain. And traditionally speaking, we've always thought of the left side of the brain as the analytical side and the right side as the creative side. Well, modern brain science shows that that's actually not accurate, but it's it's a longstanding tradition. So let's think in those terms. You're kickstarting the, the right side of your brain with the left side of your brain. And, you know, two halves of a brain are got to be better than one half. So you're going to come up with, with great things. I know a lot of designers, they sit down and they think and they think and they think until they come up with an idea <laughs> and they run with it. And because it's the only one they've got, they put blinders on and they don't, they don't look at its, its failings or its weak, weaknesses. They just go ahead with it because it's the only thing they got. It's their only baby and they're going to run with it. Well, where this approach gives you so many ideas, hopefully your, your, your dilemma will be, how do I choose the best out of all these wonderful ideas? Not just, this is the only one I've got and I'm going to go with it. Yeah, I, I totally agree that when it comes around to brainstorming ideas, I do see a lot of designers that just draw one or two ideas. But the way that I like to work and the way that the best designers work, they will have a whole page of uh, hundreds of different potential options. And uh, I'm personally doing that just um, uh, because I want to explore that uh the 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 potential of the idea but i love this framework mm -hmm. uh, it's 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 a, a fantastic approach again not heard it before until uh reading your book um and you know running through it now i'm gonna have to use that myself it, it makes the 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 whole exercise easier and um, it allows you to come up with more ideas and it's just impossible to get stuck a lot of people get stuck when coming up with ideas but thinking of it in this way having this framework for idea generation is is fantastic you've done a really good job michael thank you thank you well it took 25 years to come up with it <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's a lifetime's it's worth fun. of work it's, yeah and it's because i was teaching students too so you know you're always when you're trying to teach somebody else how how can they you know come up with better things um over time it it, it came yeah I guess that comes down to when you evaluate their work as well. That's how you came up with that blackout. Yes. Blowout, sorry. Blowout. That's how you came up with blowout because you're having to evaluate their work and give feedback. Um, because I uh, I run something called the Logo Geek Community, which is a free Facebook group. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of people sharing their work. And uh, I've never really had a proper framework. I mean, there's principles that I would uh, apply, but referencing that blowout and and using this approach to come up with ideas. If this is like a proper masterclass for logo design, so I hope the audience is appreciating this. <laughs> well, when I started to teach college, I, I had made up my mind that I was not going to do the things that I hated about my own instructors in university, uh, who I felt graded things on what they liked and didn't like. So I had to kind of mimic their taste. And I realized that was totally bogus. <laughs> it does not belong in any kind of education. And and I wanted to grade my, my students on principles that were solid, that did not change, that I could say, look, this is the principle and you, you, did, you missed it here or you totally violated it there, whatever. Not based on anything that was subjective, but try to get as objective as I could in grading. And so it was always that, that exercise of the, it was when I was grading that I came up with most of the insights and I would realize this is wrong. What's wrong about it? And, ah, uh, oh, this is what's wrong about it. And then I realized, well, I can't really fault this student because I didn't teach them that. But the next semester, then I would teach them, <laughs> you know, about this principle that this, this is something to avoid, or this is something to make sure you do. And um, so, like I said, it did come, it did build up over time. Yeah, you can really see that. Uh, I know when I was reading through this, it's like, this is years and years and years of work that's gone into this, lots of time and and uh, thinking. Um, it's very comprehensive. So it's, it's a fantastic book. I want to go into that. I'll, I'll go into that in more detail later on in the conversation because you sent something over to me, this controversy sheet. Yes. And um, it's, it's, uh, 
these different things that artsy designers say versus what you say. Can we run through some of these? Because these are great. And and yeah. I, I think um, there will be, I'm hoping that there will be listeners out there that will think that's me. And, uh, you know, they'll hopefully react to what you say and, and, and change their approach as a result. Very well. It's probably worth if uh, I say some of them and then you say what you would say. So okay, um, I'm referencing a reference in a sheet that, that Michael Kiney sent over. Yeah. So I want to design cool identities that will get me recognition from the design community. Oh. What would you say? I would say <laughs> that a professional works in the best interest of the client, not for personal preference or benefit. So... Uh, that's that's one of my chapters, that, that you got to be professional and a professional in any profession. Uh, if I went to a dentist and he said, how about a root canal today? Uh, you don't really need one, but I just love to do them. I would look at him with horror. I would get up out of his chair. I would never go back to him. And I would do everything I could to make sure he never practiced dentistry again, because that is not professional. <laughs> and and if I went to a lawyer and he said, I think we should sue these people. Well, shouldn't we at least, you know, write them a letter first or do something else that's a little less drastic or costly or risky? And uh, so, again, uh, you know, a, a professional is supposed to work in the client's best interest and not just uh, what they think is going to be cool, what they think will get them recognition. Uh, recognition will come when people realize that your your designs always work. Totally agree with you. Now, there's quite a few points on this, so I'll add this into the show notes. So I'll, I'll just pull out a few more. Um, so any visual element, image, or illustration can make a good logo. Absolutely wrong. Uh, because of the, so many, the, the different media, the different situations that a logo must be instantly recognizable in, uh, you know, photographs don't work. Illustrations don't work. Uh, there are so many things that just do not work. Uh, in as for logos and and logo designers have to recognize that it's a very specialized area of graphic design some things that'll work in a magazine will not work as a logo some things that will work um in in uh an ad will not work as a logo there there are it's a very specialized kind of design and the thing that makes it so limiting is that is that it has to be able to be printed has to be able to made into signage, has to be able to put on vehicles, has to be uh, ideally converted to a favicon or a favicon uh, on your website, which is only 16 pixels square. Um, there are so many different things that uh, a logo effectively has to, has to do that it does indeed have constraints because the function of it is so, so widespread, so, so uh, broad. Mm-hmm totally agree with you i'm going to bring up one more so uh sometimes you have to sacrifice some utility for a cool logo idea well it's only cool if it works as a logo (laughs) so there's the there's the flaw (laughs) in that ointment do you really believe that the operation can be a success if the patient dies you know you you, you just got to get your priorities straight and start thinking clearly about what what it is you're doing for the client what are you what are you aspiring to do for the client and and keep that focus going yeah i totally agree well there's there's like 10 points on that list uh it's a pdf so i'm gonna put it put it in the show notes people can download it read through it um i think it's full of great advice and i've heard people say some of the things on there and uh you've got good arguments for uh, exactly why they shouldn't take that approach so thanks for sending that over and putting that together well confession i have I have said some of each one of those artsy things myself and <laughs> lived long enough to realize where I was wrong. I just want to take a short break to thank FreshBooks who have sponsored this episode. As creatives, we like to spend our time designing logos and brand identities, but a lot of us spend more time than we'd like doing admin work, like creating invoices, chasing payments, logging expenses. And that's where FreshBooks can help you. It's an accounting software designed for creative professionals that will save you time. For example, you can create branded, professional-looking invoices in as little as 30 seconds. You can set up credit card payments right from those invoices too, meaning that your clients can pay faster. 
And when it comes around to tax time, you can export out tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with an accountant really simple. Right now, I'm offering listeners of the Logo Geek podcast a free 30-day trial. To claim that, just head to freshbooks.com forward slash Logo Geek, making sure to enter Logo Geek in how did you hear about a section. Now let's get back to the interview. I don't know if you wanted to get into the famous fails section of my book. I oh, sure. Um, I'd love to go into that now. So um, yeah, go yeah. for it. Uh, this book that we're talking about is the second edition. My first book was produced seven years ago, and at that time, uh, I used three examples of big companies who hired huge branding firms who should have known better to design their 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 new logos. And the three companies were AT and T, uh, Continental Airlines, and Xerox. And AT and T ditched the logo that they had previously, was a, which was an excellent logo designed by Saul Bass. And they replaced it with an homage to that logo, but it was a 3D, um, very subtle globe that had the the blue stripes on it. The problem with it was that it it had low contrast because I I assert that you have to have a minimum of 40% contrast is minimal contrast anywhere. And a logo should always have excellent contrast, which is 60% contrast with its background. This did not have that whereas the original uh, Saul Bass logo did. Uh, it did not have that. It had to be produced in full color on all of their stationery, which greatly increased their, their cost for stationery, whereas typically a logo printed in a single color uh, and then your address in a second color, um, you're printing in two inks, and two inks is cheaper than four inks. So um, they had that issue with it. Um, it had um, really clumsy shapes, when you took away the color and the the subtlety, and you just looked at the shapes, they were they were clumsy, and uh, so it had like three strikes against it. Three of the of the seven deadly sins it had going for it. It was like absolutely three strikes and you're out. Then Continental again, um, they ditched a logo that they had uh, gotten from Saul Bass again, and in favor of this new logo that which was a globe and it had all these little fine lines on it. And it didn't work. It didn't print well on their own boarding passes. It would smudge because the lines, the negative lines were so fine. It would fill in. Um, it didn't look good on their own uh, TV screens. When you, when you sat on, the, on, a, on a continental flight, uh, you'd look at the TV screen in the seat. And before the movies were available, they would just have the continental logo. And there were not enough pixels to show the lines as a solid white or yellow against this dark blue background. And so it was pixel mush. Then later on, when Continental and United merged, they kept the United name, but they also kept this inferior Continental logo, replacing a third logo that Saul Bass had designed, a really excellent U logo. Uh, and so at, at the time of publishing my, my book the first time, these were what they were using. And the third of the famous fails was Xerox. They um, ditched a design that had been designed by Chermayef, Geismer, and Haviv and um, in favor of this new one. And it was this globe, this three-dimensional globe that had a, a white intersecting stripes on it. And inside the intersecting stripes, there were gray lines. So two-color logos are always a difficulty for registration and so on. While that logo was being used, that was while I was still teaching uh, at the college, and our college used exclusively Xerox printers. So I would go down to the print room, and I would look at the box that the Xerox – this is Xerox's own box, <laughs> and, and it's printed in uh, – cardboard boxes are usually printed in flexography, which is just a glorified rubber stamp on a, on a drum that uh, allows for the flexing of, the, of the, this uneven material. and the logos were, were horribly deformed because of the thin lines in it, and uh, it just looked terrible on the box. Then if you open the box and you got out a ream of paper, the, the, that was printed apparently in letterpress because of the millions of wrappers they had to have on the millions of reams of paper they sell around the world. And 
there you had instead of the gray lines they had opted for just solid black lines but they were out of register with the rest of the logo it was only a millimeter or so but when when you're dealing with a logo that's only a half inch around a millimeter is is a lot to be out of register and that's the problem with two color logos is that you've got registration issues every time you go to print and you are going to get things out of register so there was that issue then the second the third thing was on the actual xerox machine they had these little led um, control screens that you used to punch in the numbers and the the all the things that you wanted with the thing that you were photocopying or printing and on its own screen, their logo was washed out. The gray lines didn't show up at all because it was too subtle for that kind of a screen. And so here on their very own machines, <laughs> their, their own logo didn't, re, didn't reproduce well. <laughs> now, we always think of Xerox as photocopy company. But it turns out that in the last decade or so, their, their profit model has actually shifted. They are in the big uh, reproduction machines now where you you put in you plug in a USB key on one end and you get a finished publication or book on the other end. Uh, that's where their big money is coming now. So they're a reproduction company. How absurd that a reproduction company has a logo that no matter what you do, doesn't reproduce well. So all three of those companies, since the first printing of my first edition of the book and this second printing, they've all ditched their logos, every one of them, like I said they should, in favor of something that more meets the what I call the core principles of logo design. Uh, AT&T got rid of its, its um, 3D uh, subtle thing. They, they have a flat orb that is made with flat colors, and it works out well. Not only that, they had to uh, re-sculpt those lines because, the, the, like I said, one of the drawbacks of doing a 3D thing is that you don't notice that you've got poor shapes. And they, they redrew those shapes so that they are much nicer and more refined. Um, so AT&T has ditched its, its uh, bad logo and come up with a better one. United Airlines has simplified their globe. It used to have, uh, I think it was... 16 longitude lines and 13 latitude lines and they've opted now they're down to eight longitude lines and eight latitude lines simplifying it much much more so that the lines themselves can be sturdier in other words giving them mass so that they can reproduce well and now it actually looks good on their own website they have not converted over all of their 700 plus you know airplanes and uh and so on, because the, the cost of that has to be horrendous uh, to do these, these you know, 40-foot-high uh, logos in vinyl. Um, the, the cost of that just must be horrendous. They have not yet switched all of that over, but they're in the process of it. I expect it'll take them another 10 years to do that. And that isn't money wasted. The money wasted was in adopting the bad logo in the first place and, and paying to have it put on all their vehicles and, and everything. And then the third one, is the Xerox uh, globe. And rather than try to redesign that, they've just omitted it. And they've gone with their with the, the signature that accompanied it, which is, is nice. It's, it wasn't bad. Um, and so they've, they've just plain thrown in the towel and, and gotten rid of the logo altogether. So again, that, that might be the least costly of the three famous fails in terms of re-implementing their identity, but it still does cost. Uh, they still have to, you know, reissue uh, uniforms and reissue uh, all sorts of things um, to make it better. So those are the examples of what I call famous fails. They were all big, big companies who could afford the best design. You know they paid uh, many, many bucks to, to have those things done by the big companies. Uh, two of them were, uh, I think two of them were, one of them was Lippincott and one of them was Interbrand. And, uh, I can't remember which ones are which now, but these are these are big companies. And uh, but those companies, these big companies, don't have all that good of a track record for designing things that conform to what I call the core principles. And that's unfortunate. I think in terms of principles, uh, there hasn't really been a, a reference until you put this together. So this blowout thing that that you mentioned that we spoke about earlier in the conversation. That's an incredible resource for for reference referencing work, evaluating it, making sure that it does comply. Because you can have something that will look good, 
but will it actually work effectively in the real world? And you've identified this system that companies can use, designers use um, to avoid all of these situations. There was something that that you mentioned you mentioned throughout this vinyl, and and just before we move on, I do want to speak about this because. Um, it's, it's one of the first books that I mentioned it, but there's a section in your book where you, you speak about color consistency. And I have an episode coming up with Pantone talking about color consistency, um, referencing from Pantone as a color. But in your book, you say for the greatest consistency, you'd, you'd base it off vinyl. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Because that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the big companies, 3M and Avery, who are the, the at least in, in North America, they're the largest producers of vinyl for signage. Uh, they have, each of them have a swatch book of colors that the vinyl is available in. Uh, yes, you can get a custom color done, and some companies do, but they will require you to order literally 10,000 rolls of this custom color. So that's totally out of the question for most companies. So you have to choose a color that is available in vinyl for signage and for vehicles. Now, if you've got a company that doesn't have either signage or vehicles, then that's fine. You can ignore this. But most companies do have one or the other or both. And so if you you can get every vinyl color in Pantone. And, of course, you can take any vinyl color and reproduce it as CMYK or an RGB. But the reverse is not the case. You can't necessarily take any Pantone color and get a vinyl color to match it. You can be too warm, too cool, too light, too dark, too saturated, too neutral. It just it, it just doesn't work. So it makes sense because it's not like they, they don't have enough colors there. It's, a, it's over 100 in, three, in uh, Avery, and it's a similar uh, selection in, in, uh, in 3M. And I don't know what the big companies are in, in Britain, for instance. It may be the same ones. But, um, you know, if you can't find a color there in those hundred that works for you, well, th- you know, maybe you want to re- rethink your color rationale because it does need to have the ability to reproduce in those with the vinyl. And like I said, um, you have the full printed vinyl now. You can get full color printed vinyl and wrap a whole car in this photo if you want. but those things only last about, at this point, uh, the best information I've been able to find out is that the vinyl only lasts about a third of the time because the printed inks fade. And of course, vehicles and signage are always out in the elements. They're always being exposed to UV light and, and that stuff just wears down color. So you want solid vinyl, which holds its color and lasts longer. If you're going to have a fleet of vehicles, imagine, for instance, AT&T. How many thousands of vehicles does AT&T have? Now, I don't know if they even exist over there in Britain, but they're the, the biggest telecommunications company in North America. And they have thousands upon thousands of vehicles. If you have to replace your, your vehicle graphics in a third of the time of what it would be if it was solid vinyl, because you've gone with a, a full-color printed vinyl, that is a huge hidden expense for your client that uh, it, they're not going to appreciate that in the long run. So, yes, I do say that it, it makes sense to, to pick a vinyl color because then you know everything else will match. That's easy peasy. Uh, but going the other direction, it, it isn't. And Pantone is wonderful. I love Pantone. I love their, their inks. They have colors that you cannot achieve in CMYK and, and so on and so forth. But, but uh, even so... You can always get a Pantone color to match your vinyl, but you can't always get a vinyl to match your Pantone. So you really start with the thing that has the least selection and work from there. And most of the time, it'll work out just fine because most people pretty much opt for for some very basic colors. And if you want a more exotic color, they, they've still got a 100 of them. Uh, there's something there that, that should be able to, to work for you. Yeah, interestingly, um, after I read this in your book, I spoke to a number of designers that I've uh, known for some time that have a lot of experience. And I'm like, have you, have you guys heard this before? I've never heard this uh, mentioned anywhere. And uh, the, the approach that some of them have taken uh, for big companies, they, they work for big companies. They've What they've done is they've selected the color and then in the brand guidelines, they provided the closest match. So it's not always an exact match because they've done it 
the other way around. But um, I, I guess if you do want 100% uh, uh, pure accuracy, then it does make sense to go from the vinyl to the Pantone to the CNYK to the RGB and and doing it in in that direction, especially for these huge companies where they do have uh, the car apps and the signage and everything like that. I, I, it's it, like I said, it's not something I've read in a book before, and I've read a lot of books on logo design, so that's why I wanted to really uh, stress on this and 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 bring it up because I, I can imagine it would be um, possibly new information for quite a lot of people. Right. Well, actually, what I said was that it it it, it is possible for a large company to get a custom color through 3M or through Avery. Uh, they can get a custom color of vinyl, but they have to order ten thousand rolls. But big companies, they will use that. And that's that's just you know the cost of doing business. I'm talking about your average company who doesn't can't can't in the world afford to order ten thousand rolls of a special company color because the designer insisted on this particular shade of puce. You know, <laughs> when why? But just because uh, you know to get to get that incur that kind of cost to your client without considering that another color could work um, is is. I consider irresponsible design. So again, it it's it's not doesn't apply to the big companies because they can order whatever color they want, and it will not affect their bottom line too much. But the smaller companies, it definitely would. So that's why yeah. I, I say, yeah. as a rule of thumb, start with the vinyl, pick a color that'll work, and then you're then you're laughing because everything else can match. Yeah. It goes the other way as well. So if you were to start with RGB, and like I said, I've got another episode uh, coming up with this in in a lot more detail uh, with Pantone. But if you was to pick an RGB space, RGB, because it's made up of light, has a much wider spectrum than uh, CNYK. So it's a huge mistake to pick an RGB color and then convert that to CNYK because um, I've actually had a client very recently that had a website done and they wanted me to match the color um, on their website. And uh, we actually went with that in the end, but I had to explain to them, you know, if you ever get anything printed, it's a very different color. I mean, this was uh, like a a bluey pinky color, you know, quite a vibrant uh, color and it looks great. And, and in their case, they're pretty much 99.9% of their communication will be online because um, they're an AI company. So they do it all online. It's all by email. So they can get away with it. But if they ever needed anything printed, uh, that nice, vibrant, purpley blue color is pretty much impossible to recreate in print. It's, it's yes. impossible to get anything even slightly close. <laughs> Yeah, it's called color gamut. I taught uh, I taught color theory almost as long as I taught uh, logo design, and and color gamut is is uh, CMYK. We think it gives us every color there is, but it's it's really very limited. The human eye can can perceive so much more. RGB gives the largest gamut that there is in any technology we have, but but that's why that uh, Pantone has come out with this book that compares CMYK. To, to straight Pantone colors, like they have oranges that there's no way in the world you can achieve in CMYK. It, it, you can't get there from here with CMYK. But they, they have these oranges that are just brilliant and wonderful. And and so there's this book that has them side by side. It's rather an expensive swatch book, but they're really quite quite valuable to help you see. If you choose this color in, in Pantone, this is this is all you're going to get out of CMYK, and of course, the whole, anything is printed. You know, CMYK is your best bet there. Now, there was a technology called um, Hexachrome, which uh, Pantone came out with, and if they hadn't been a little greedy and charged five hundred dollars for the plugin to go into Photoshop to convert your 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 ads into uh, Hexachrome separations instead of CMYK, uh, they could have done a whole lot better. <laughs> That gives a beautiful uh, range. It really increases on the on the gamma of what is possible through print beyond CMYK because it uses six colors. It uses a brilliant orange and it uses a very vibrant uh, yellow green. And uh, in addition to a corrected magenta, uh, a bet a yellow that's pretty much the same as regular yellow, and um, and a corrected cyan. So. But uh, that didn't happen, so it's unfortunate. You can see that the big companies like Cadillac and 
Rolls-Royce will print their catalogs in hexachrome, whereas uh, the, the, the more common vehicles will just print them in CMYK because it does give a more brilliant uh, color. It sounds like there's so many things that we could talk about. You're very, very knowledgeable on the topic, Michael. So, um, but we have nearly come up to an hour. Um, so I, I do want to ask one last question, and sure. uh, I don't know how long the answer would be. But I, I want to I ask you about your book. We've mentioned it throughout. So you've released this book, and you said it's the second edition, yes. uh, Logo Design Theory. Yes. Do you want to talk about the book, and then we'll, we'll wrap up the interview? Sure. Uh, when I started to teach my, the first of my 25 years, I wanted to adopt a book that would tell my students what the basic principles are, the things that don't change, the things that are not affected when fads come in and, and fashions <laughs> go out of fashion, the things that are just kind of enduring. And I could not find such a book. It did not exist. And I thought, how can it not exist? There's got to be some book out there like this. And I could not find it. It, it did not exist. And uh, and publishers will throw books at teachers because if you adopt it, that's 40 sales a year for every class you're teaching. You know, they, they, they will gladly give you every book they've got in the hopes that you will adopt it for your classes. So it wasn't a case of not, not being able to find it or not being able to afford it. The, the books didn't exist. And so I realized, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to teach my students that anything goes because anything doesn't go. And so I began to create my own materials to teach with. And that was the basis of this book. So some of these things uh, have been in existence since I created them, you know, 20 years ago, and I've been adding to them ever since. So when I first put out this book seven years ago, I sent a copy, uh, one each to each of the principals at Chermayev, Geismer, and Haviv, which is a New York uh, design firm. Uh, Chermayev and Geismer um, did um, so many of the great logos that we that we know. Um, they did the Screen Gems. They did uh, Merck Pharmaceuticals. They did Chase Manhattan Bank. They did uh, the older Xerox uh, identity. They did a version of PBS. They did a version of NBC. They were the first ones to do the Univision which has since has some iterations, uh, Harper College, all sorts of these wonderful logos. They, you know, they're the kind of people that they may have their equals, but they don't have their superiors, right, in logo design. They are the top. And Ivan Chermev, bless his heart, uh, wrote me back a letter, a handwritten uh, a letter that he actually signed. It was typed, but he actually signed it and sent it back to me through the old mail. What's that? And uh, and I have that, that letter. It's a, it's a prized possession. He said, at last... Somebody finally understands what identity design is all about and how it is accomplished. And I cherish that. I put it on the back of that edition of the book, and I put it on the back of, of the new edition of the book. The new edition uh, is bigger by quite a bit. It, it, it expands on some of the things. I Whereas the first edition had 1,300 examples, uh, illustrations, charts, and so on, the, the second edition has an additional 850 examples, and I also have sections where I show that today's designers are feeling their way towards these core principles and redesigning identities in accordance with the core principles. And so I go back through all of the seven deadly sins of logo design, and I show how people have fixed their designs that had those sins and how they have fixed them. So that's that's a new section in the book that the that the old book didn't have, and um, I I just uh, believe that there's these are these are correct principles, and your eyes will prove it to you to yourself that that they are. Um, I'm not particularly smart, uh, but I have just been dogged in trying to figure out what these things are, and over time uh, I have figured out a few things, and I think. Most designers would, would benefit from uh, looking at these and considering these things and, and then, of course, practicing those things because they, they will bear fruit. And designs that will last and have the potential to last forever are the kind of designs all of us, I'm sure, would aspire to do. Mm, absolutely. And that sounds like a really good point to end the interview. And I, I think it's worth adding I've read a lot of books on logo design. Um, I've been collecting them for years and I've I've always been surprised that no matter how many books on logo design you read, there always seems to be some uh, nugget in, in different books. There isn't 
uh, the, the one book to rule them all, so to speak. I, I don't think that uh, currently exists, but what you put together is, is come close to that, you know, pulling together uh, what all these different uh principles are creating a system to evaluate all the stuff that we mentioned in this episode to be fair a lot of that stuff i haven't even read in books this is uh, there's, there's some real gold stuff in in this book so it is worth um worth purchasing and reading through carefully uh there's a lot in there it's it's not a book just full of pictures there's a lot of content to go through um but as you can all tell from this episode, Michael, you know so much about this topic. We could carry on going for several more hours. Um, uh, but I mean, I'm conscious that <laughs> listeners probably don't want to listen for hours and hours and on. Uh, maybe they do. <laughs> um, but in terms of as an episode, I think an hour is long enough. And uh, maybe I'll get you back on at a later date to expand on some things a little bit further but michael thank you so much for your time um it's this is a real masterclass for logo design you know if anyone was to listen to one episode to really learn uh this has to be that one so thank you so much for your time you're quite welcome thank you hopefully you enjoyed that as much as i did um and if you did do give us a shout out on social media. I always love to hear from you guys and I know that Michael will appreciate that too. So if you want to learn more about this week's guests, head to their website, logodesigntheory.com. Alternatively, check out the show notes for this episode where I'll link to that, all of Michael's social profiles, any links, books or resources we mentioned, as well as a full transcription of the interview too. So to find the show notes, head to logogeek.uk forward slash 84. Again, to find the show notes, head to logogeek.uk forward slash 84. If you're keen to discuss anything mentioned in this interview with me and over 9,000 logo designers from around the world, join the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's free to join and it's very active, so you'll get your questions answered, the feedback that you want and the support that you need to grow as a designer. So to find out, just head to logogeek.uk forward slash community or do a search on Facebook for the Logo Geek community. If you've been enjoying the podcast, can I request you to write a review on iTunes? Uh, the reason for that is it will help me to reach more people. Uh, basically, people's reviews are one of the many things that iTunes factor in to the uh to the ranking so when people search for graphic design podcasts and so on hopefully the more reviews i can get the higher up in those results i would be and that will attract more listeners to the podcast so if you can spare a moment and write a review that would be very very much appreciated so thank you if you are able to do that and obviously if you have already done that you are amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I, it's it's genuinely really appreciated. So thank you so much. So that is it for this week. But I'll see you the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast. <laughs>